asking you, our listener, to imagine the opening music to Star Wars. Music that is deep, yet exploratory of a new hope, with a lot of horns. Da, 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 da. You got it, right? <laughs> now the words start scrolling from the bottom of the movie screen. A long, long time ago, in a music galaxy far, in a music galaxy far, far, oh heck, in a music galaxy right here in Dallas-Fort Worth, people listen to such hits as The Ballad of Davy Crockett, Twiddle Dee, band leaders like Mitch Miller and Lawrence Welk were big, Frank Sinatra, Rosemary Clooney, and Dean Martin sang songs written for them. Then came the 60s, and pop music changed from pop art to jukebox poetry. This new music talked about reality, not about fantasy that commercial songwriters wrote. Bob Dylan, a young man from Minnesota, changed everything. Now it is the mid-70s. Rock, hard rock, and punk are pushing musical boundaries. Stepping forward into this cacophony of change was a new wave of DJs, radio show hosts, and talk radio jocks. One of those was right here in North Texas, George Gamark. He was a creative mind behind the zoo, the edge, classic rock, and much more. For 40 years, he was a force in music locally, nationally, and internationally. George is here with Muddy and I and has a lot to share. So let's dig into this interview right now. Amy, let's roll. This is the Dogger and Muddy Music Show. Listen up. It's all about the music. Let's check in on the artists, songs, and people behind the scenes. Are you listening? Muddy and I are sitting here with George Kamark. He's the creative power behind the Zoo, K-Rocks, KDGE, The Edge, just tons of radio stations. But he did that for 30 plus years. From there, he went on to write books about uh, punk rock, post-punk rock. In fact, I've got the post-punk one in my car right now listening to on the way over here. Last year or so, he started Zoo on the Internet. And so we're going to try and cover all of that. And I'm sitting here in the middle of his... I guess you'd call it his studio, with records stacked up all around. He pulled out a recorder from 61 that was made in Germany. He's been showing me all kinds of tricks. He's got these master uh, recordings that were never released that are just will take your breath away. Anyway, I'm getting carried away. George, this is a real treat to have you. Nice to be here, Muddy. <laughs> Muddy appreciates. He's glad to hand you the mic. He's he curled up over in the corner. And he gets along with your He gets along well with your two dogs. I, I'm, I have not brought any treats with me, and I feel terrible at the, the woeful, baleful look that I'm getting off both of these dogs. Jeez. Well, I'll, I'll give him a treat when we get home. It's okay. Did you start? You started before college, right? Getting into the whole radio I started thing. my senior year in high school. Yeah, uh, I, I was a, I was a I was I was thinking of going into journalism of all things, worked for the high school newspaper and yearbook and what have you, and got sent on a story. I was assigned go do this story, go write us an article about news about um, radio stations, and so I went and found five radio stations, the local radio stations, went and interviewed the disc jockeys, wrote an article for the um, Lake Highlands Fang. Yeah, and wound up uh, coming back after the whole thing and thinking these people get paid for playing records and goofing off. It appealed to my lazy nature, <laughs> and and I thought. 
that's that's a job that I can wrap my arms around. So while still a senior, um, I found a mentor in one of the one of the the guys that I did an interview with, and he basically told me, "Yeah, if you want to get in, get in now." While you're, while you're still young and gullible, find out if you really like the business so you don't make any horrible decisions, you know, make those, make those horrible decisions when you're 17 rather yeah. than when you're 27 and you're stuck. Yeah. Right. Um, so where to go? I had to go out and find an internship and my fir- the first station that said, yeah, kid, you can work here was WRRAM, which was an all news station. 1310 on the okay. dial down at Fair Park. 1310, yeah. And so I made, I learned how to make coffee and clean the restrooms and clear the wire machines and capture news actualities on cartridges and to give it to the newsman and keep things running from 3 a.m. till 9 a.m. every morning uh, on, at WRR. WRR. <laughs> like That's the way Brother Dave Gardner would say it. WRR. Well, you went beyond. Just getting your feet wet. You jumped in 1,000% into radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was fun. It's, it's, it's not work. And, and isn't that the key? Isn't that the key? Find a job that's not a job. Right. And that's, that's what I did. And uh, I fortunately got myself into several situations where my imagination was allowed to run rampant yet realistic. And I was Good. able to create stations uh, from the ground up, the first one I created was KROX, KRQX, which was uh, the AM. It was 570 AM WFAA. It was a news talk station, but a failing news talk station was in a lot of debt. So they gave you some freedom then? Well, what happened was uh, I they were they, in the hallways. It was talk. This is when I was working at the zoo. Right. Uh, there was talk that they were considering something to do with this station, but they didn't know what to do with it. It was 1980, I think, 81. And I knew that over at the zoo, we were getting a lot of requests for Beatles, Hendrix, Cream, Credence, stuff like that, that we couldn't fit into the playlist because we were spending too much time playing uh, Boston and Journey and Aerosmith and Heart. We just there was no room in the playlist to play the classics, and so I so I proposed. I said, "What about we create a station that plays all this? You know, uh, well, you you could call it, you know, the, all the classic rock people, correct? And put them all in one format, and use it as an adjunct to the zoo, a complement to the zoo, where this is the old zoo, this is the new zoo." And he said, "That's an interesting idea. Pull pull it together." So I put it together. We we put it on the air. They got new call letters. They had they believed in it enough that they they called it KRQX K Rocks. Yeah. And had a new logo for it and I was in charge of it. You were and kind of given on. the credit for creating classic rock right? Uh well, it, there was somebody else who came through town and liked what I was doing and basically took it on a national level. Okay. Um, and then got credit for it because they were national and I was just this 20 something in one town. So there's no fighting that. I mean, I, I, yeah. there's no, no fighting that. Once the momentum stops, you can't stop it. Yeah. You know, once the momentum starts, you can't yeah, stop it. You know, but you know, it, it was, I, I knew, I knew what I had done and I ran that station for a couple of years until there was a change in management and a new guy came in and he wanted to take it more in a traditional oldies format, which was probably the right move because after K-Rocks was up for about a year or so, 
um, John Shambi over at KZPS saw what we were doing and said, I want to do that same format on FM. And he did, and he killed us because hearing cream in stereo on a clear FM signal was much better than hearing it on a on an AM signal in mono. So K Rocks got killed by KZPS in the mid '80s, and so K Rocks I kind of left the helm at K Rocks, uh, and it shifted to being a more traditional golden oldie station, and I went full force into doing uh, more of my alternative music programming, which would end up in the late 80s, putting me at the helm of uh, KDGE, the new station called The Edge. Right. And all these were kind of new concepts. I mean, I guess one thing we should maybe do for the audience is clarify what radio was like, what music radio was like, and you took it in new directions uh, during the course of this. Can you talk a little bit to that? Um, Well, let's see. Uh, I mean, the first thing I was doing new like that was in the uh, with the rock and roll alternative a show that i started in 77 march of 77 on, on a campus radio station came to you up at north texas i started playing alternative and punk rock new wave music you know as well as called punk and new wave alternative it didn't exist as a term and it was a little block program show and it did pretty well and then when i graduated i got over to the zoo and I started doing the same show for them and it gained a pretty big audience over there. And so I was bringing that sort of what was considered underground music to commercial radio, which in about a was unique in about a six or eight state area around, around Texas. I was, I was it. There was somebody like me in San Francisco. There was somebody like me in Los Angeles. There was somebody like me in New York. I mean, there were several of us little Johnny Appleseeds out there doing it. It wasn't unique, but it was was very unusual because in the days before the Internet and interconnectivity and all that, uh, you could rule your little kingdom, as I did up in, in, in Texas here, being Mr. Alternative. And that lasted well up through the late 80s, you know, so I had about a 10-year run of being the guy. So I'm the guy that broke, you know, U2 and REM and 10,000 right. Maniacs. But there's also all the other bands that I tried to break that didn't make it, you know, like the Spikes or uh, the Push Twangers or the Long Riders, you know, you never heard of. Everybody like hears about your successes. They don't hear about the bands that didn't make it, but you believed in just as much. Right. So I had those. That's that's one of the, the innovations. Well, and then also, you kind of fostered some pirate radio in a sense, too, didn't you? Well, yeah, there was a guy that approached me, a guy who was going by, I, I, you know, I never knew what his real name was. He called himself John England. And I, I to this day, I still have no idea what his real name is. Uh, <laughs> but he would take cassettes of my show uh, record the sh- I would record the show, and he would take the cassette, and then he would send it to about a dozen pirate radio stations around the world. So I was on the air in New Zealand and Scotland and uh, Sweden and <laughs> Australia. And, and, yeah, Australia, yeah. Kiwi Radio, yeah. I think it was. And it, was it was crazy, because you know, I was thinking, oh, this can't possibly be real. And then I would end up getting, I would end up getting records from bands in those countries saying, hey, I heard you know, on your radio show, you were looking for, please play our band. And they would get a tape or a record from somebody from overseas. And it was like, 
Jesus is real. This is actually real. Yeah. So that lasted for a couple of years on the Four Freedoms World Network or whatever it was. It was yeah, funny yeah stuff. And, and that's that was kind of an ideology you created, Freedom right. Radio. Yeah. Radio. So clarify because, that. Yeah, because radio in, in those countries, especially in England at the time, was still basically four channels. That was it. There were four channels. There was no other sources of radio. It was incredibly backward. So this was a, a pirate radio station. I think all of my pirate radio stations that I was on were land-based, which means it was somebody with a little tiny transmitter uh, in an, set up in an attic broadcasting to an area about the size of a, of a village, you know, or a small wow. city. Um, yeah, very grab-ass, <laughs> very punk rock. Now, how would they grab you and play your stuff on their on their stage? This guy, John England, would actually physically mail cassettes out every week to these people, and they were playing the cassettes. Wow. So I, I never had to handle the distribution. He did all that. <laughs> so I don't I, – I, and it was all – idealistically driven because there was no money involved in it. There was no, there was no remuneration happening. There was no advertising. It was just f f because it was a thing to do. But your voice is booming in Australia and New Zealand and all it was over very the place. weird. It was very, very weird. <laughs> During the course of this, you probably uh, pulled together a few vinyl albums. Uh, no, what, were, what, was the, what was the peak of your collection? It's always at its peak. I'm at I'm at peak vinyl right now, and I'm trying to come off of it. I've I've got a, a room set up in my new digs here where it's probably got five thousand records in it that are destined to be sold now. You know, because I'm trying to I'm trying to cull out stuff because I'm finding I have so many records that I haven't listened to in twenty years, and they really should go to the next home. They should be somewhere where somebody will listen to them. Right. I shouldn't just be hoarding them. So I, I got to start thinning some of this stuff out. I don't know, 60, 70, 80,000 records. Something really? Like that. that many? Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. So that was, gal dang, how many rooms does that take? Did that take well, what do we got, five here? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's entirely too much. And then I started, you know, uh, I would, when records are free, when you're at a radio station, a really big radio station like yeah. the Zoo or the or the Edge, and records are free, you you, you take home every puppy. I mean, you right. just take them home. You can't help yourself. And sometimes yeah. you you know, I used to have this thing where it's kind of like, well, you know, I'm going to play the Sex Pistols a lot, so I probably had ought to have a couple spares just in case I end up scratching one. Well, I never scratched a record because I take immaculate care records and then here we are 20 30 years later with these immaculate and records through, and i go through my storage bin and i find my myself in possession of you know like five still sealed copies of the sex pistols album and it's like wow okay i don't need those but they are worth about a hundred dollars a piece so <laughs> okay time to sell them off wow you know and then some records like the, uh there was a record i think it was a group called the offs from san francisco that sent me their album and it was it was an okay album, but it sounded like local bands that I had here that I would rather play the local band instead of the local band from somewhere else. So I never played the record. And so it's like, okay, I got to call this thing out of my collection because I I don't really need it. And I find out it's a thousand dollar album. It's like, are you kidding me? That thing's worth a thousand bucks. Well, that'll pay for some new shrubs for the yard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, my moving expenses and what have you. So. Yeah, yeah, it's it's time to unburden myself of 
some of this mountain of vinyl and shellac. So I'm going to jump forward for a second because here we are in the world of uh, the internet and everything. That's amazing. You said jump and, and Muddy actually jumped. You have that dog trained. Like, <laughs> I know. It's amazing. It's astounding. It's amazing. Sit. If, 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 just we, sit. if I had him even listen way me. back, I could have gotten him on the Ed Sullivan show, I think. <laughs> You're going to jump forward. Yes, I am going to jump forward. Thank you very much. Dog's for, looking anxious because again. Because my, my mind jumped forward and then it w- <laughs> went to the side. Okay, so we've got the internet now and we've got radio. How do you compare music that's on the radio to what you can get on the internet? Uh, geez, if John Ritchie ever heard me say this. I, we're, we're, I'm, conf- I'm conflicted because radio and the internet... Uh, there's so many internet products there's there's streaming there's on demand there's what have you and radio is radio is like a meal that is served for you that you never see the menu it's 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 given to you in the hopes that you'll enjoy it Um, where a lot of the streaming services Pandora Spotify what have you you kind of pick and choose what you want which is a different experience and and in a lot of ways, you'll never be surprised by something that you constantly pick from the menu. So that's the downside. Uh, radio should surprise you, should entertain you, should teach you things. Sadly, radio has given up that ground, and a lot of radio doesn't do that. So that gap which existed in broadcast has kind of been picked up by a lot of podcasters. And to some extent, some of the people like on Sirius XM and what have you that have programs like little Steven's garage thing, right. you know, where it's a highly curated show. Those shows used to exist in radio. Now they, they kind of don't. So they exist in this other realm. They could come back to radio. You know, I'm, I'm ever hopeful and optimistic that there's going to be a resurgence in radio and a revival. Um, but, the price of the radio stations is going to have to come. What a radio station costs to buy is going to have to come down to make those affordable to do because the economics, you know, if you, if you pay $40 million for a radio station and you have to make $4 million a year just to cover your note. Wow. Before any of your other expenses, that's a lot of money. So the impetus is to, uh, program a lot of safe stuff that that the mass public will enjoy right just so you can cover your nut yeah but if you had only paid uh four hundred thousand for that radio station you had to make forty thousand a year to pay for it okay that's doable you could do something a little more offbeat off yeah. the wall and i can be more and, explorative and, and 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 make it work so and I think we're we're getting ready to start seeing the price of radio stations come down as some of the big boy broadcasters uh, c- c- uh, cumulus just went just came out of bankruptcy uh, today. Oh wow! Um, iHeart, uh, the really big one. Uh, we don't know what they're going to do, but they might end up selling off a whole bunch of properties at fire sale prices just to get them off their books, and it depends on if individuals buy them or if they end up getting purchased by another group which continues down that same road of overpaying and you know uh, not being very creative with their their broadcasting it's it's there's, a, there's an ebb and a flow to it right and a little bit over a year ago you created a zoo 
No, yeah, brought back the zoo. Very unlikely thing. It was something uh, John Ritchie over at Vocal kind of, hey, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, it was one of those comments. And I went, yeah. well, it's entirely doable. You know, I could do that. Is that what you want? Said, yeah, I'd love that. Oh, okay. It wasn't my idea. I just knew how to do it. Right. And I had all the tools and I had all the pieces. And I put radio stations together many, many, many times from scratch. So I know how that works. Right. So it didn't take, I mean, f- took two months to put it together, something like that. We had all the music and I knew the, the personnel, the people to make it happen. I had the imaging uh, archived uh, because I save everything. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like <laughs> 28, I think 20, yeah, 28 pounds and six ounces away from qualifying for an episode of Hoarders. So I'm trying to keep it just inside the barrier so the phone call doesn't get made. And I had all that stuff to make the zoo happen. So when you hear, listen to the zoo and you hear some of the old uh, commercials or you hear the, the sweepers or there's even the, the zoo, the roar of, of, of Zulu, uh, our elephant, uh, that was all stuff that I saved you know, 30 some odd years in a closet. Excellent. I'll do something with that someday. And I, and I did. Right. So now that we did the zoo, we also did Fuzzbox, which was kind of recreating what the edge should have been. And there's, there's several other radio stations that we're, we're talking about launching as well. And I'm kind of executive director over those. Yeah. And it's just, it's just for fun and games, you know? So to find it up on the internet, you type in Uh, vocalnow.com. Vocal V-O-K-A-L. Yeah, they spell v- it different because they are different. <laughs> V-O-K-A-L. One of the things we have freedom now to not be tied to the tyranny of the date. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that um, my friend Alex Luke, uh, a concept he threw down on me, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, Alex Luke started out as my intern back at the zoo. Uh, I brought him over to the edge with me. He invented the show that became called the uh, Adventure Club. Uh, and after we all got blown out of the edge, he wound up going through a series of jobs at radio stations in St. Louis and Chicago. And then he wound up at Napster. Um, he wound up at Spun. He wound up as the head guy at uh, iTunes. And he's the, guy that actually, he's the guy that actually got the, the Beatles onto iTunes. Thank you, Alex. And now he's over, he's A&R for EMI Records. So I was having a conversation with Alex when he was at uh, iTunes, and he was saying one of the fascinating things was that younger people were exploring older music because when they're looking at a menu of new releases, they would see a new release from St. Vincent, and it's a new release. They would see a new release from... Uh, Ella Fitzgerald and it would be presented as it's this new repackaging but they weren't really being it wasn't being sold as a repackaging it's just it's a hey it's a new album from Ella Fitzgerald and it had artwork that looked contemporary and music now is is in so many different flavors they would kind of think well maybe these are new recordings that are just done in a retro style and the clarity of the recordings is so pristine absolutely that when they're listening to uh St. Vincent and they're listening to Ella and all this um they're considered on an equal playing field rather than with the tyranny of the of the date attached to it because when when 
uh, us refugees from the old folks home uh, <laughs> came up listening to records, you would hear something off a CD and then you would end up hearing something off of a scratchy album. You go, oh, gosh, that really sounds old. That must really be old because of of the method of hearing the music, not the music, but the method, the yeah. medium made us think it was old. Well, now we've taken that out of the mix and you're hearing the music for the sake of the music and Django Reinhardt can sound not like it's from the 1930s, but it's, it's from now it's, it's, well, that's like contemporary jazz because he was so far ahead of himself. Right. So there are, there are people now that are experiencing music from all different eras, much more so than ever before in, in our history. And I, that's a really cool thing. People have an opportunity to get a lot more broad in their musical uh, education. And we uh, can find stuff so much easier now. If you're looking for, gosh, I wish I could hear Coven doing one Tin Soldier one more time. Oh, in 10 seconds, it's there on YouTube and you've got it. Right. Uh, you go back 15 years ago. You'd have to scour used record stores to try to find that right. thing. Absolutely. So uh, it's instant gratification run amok in music uh, for all the good and the bad that it does. Very good. You are one of the, uh, I believe, founders of the Texas Muse Musicians Museum. I've been... I've I've been a friend of, of Tom Creason, the, the guy who's behind it. Okay. Uh, since the beginning back in 2004, I've been kind of a, I wasn't actually an official advisor until maybe six or eight years ago, but yeah, yeah, I've been working with them and I've had stuff involved with them for ages because I like the mission, you know, preserving Texas music, showing it off, telling the stories that people don't know. Well, a month ago, you had a huge problem in the middle of the road. Can you no, take well, the audience through that a little well, bit? We had a kerfuffle with the city of Irving. Basically, the city, when we were looking for a new home uh, after Waxahachie, that was, our, that was our truly, I think, lowest point was Waxahachie because we were in the, I think it was the Rogers Hotel there. Yeah. And we had, a, uh, uh, we had a guy who was managing the property who wanted to chase tenants out so he could change rate rent structure or something yeah set well, of fire course to the place set fire to the place so we ended up losing some of our archives at three in the morning you know in a blaze that was no bueno so Damn. we bet worse and then when we looked for a new place uh, irving was saying come hither come hither come hither and promised all this you know uh, bed of roses and then almost as soon as the uh, the paperwork was signed they started cutting back on things um, that made our uh, our museum a little smaller and a little less usable. And then over the next couple of years, um, everything kind of bumped along, but the city seemed to have lost all interest in the fact that we were there. And then here we are two and a half years in on a five-year lease. And the arrangement that the museum had was a very simple one. It was if you had X amount of events uh, that were open to the public that drew people into the heritage district to, you know, make downtown Irving kind of hip and cool again, then we will give you free rent. And they started disqualifying events out of hand. You know, well, why doesn't this event qualify? Well, we can't really tell you. Well, what does it have to do to qualify? Well, just do one and we'll tell you. Nice. And so it was kind of like they were 
itching for a fight. And then when they finally finally come down to it and they say, well, you know, you're you're thirty thousand dollars behind in rent. Well, well, how can we negotiate to get out of that? And they wouldn't even engage in talks. It's kind of like, okay, it's pretty clear they got somebody else that wants this building and they want us out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're squeezing you. Instead of doing the typical thing of, you know, you have 30 days to get out of your your place, which is, you know, typical. They said you got seven days to get out of your place. Seven. To move 10,000 square feet of card-carrying uh, jerks and what have you. So we managed to do it. It was a struggle. Yeah, I heard you had to, you had to pull but, in favors. You had to pull people from all over the place and, to get everything out, right? And now there's five or six different uh, entities or cities that are... Uh, kind of competing to put in their offers so we're hoping to see that we can uh, land somewhere else we've got some very interesting offers out there so i hope well story's not written yet i live here in dfw so i'm hoping it lands here very close but i'm sure there's some other cities that well may vie stronger in the dfw dfw area is where we're looking we haven't it's not like we're entertaining offers from you know, El Paso or Austin or Houston or what Oh, okay, have you. good. So it's, all the offers are from the, the metro area. Wonderful. Good. So, but um, that's all I can say at this point. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Stepping back, let's build up his ego a little bit. He, oh, for his work with the radio, over radio over the time, he won a Grammy. And uh, in the last few years... Totally he, unrelated to radio. That was just luck of the draw. What? Oh, they just they throw a Grammy to anybody no, no, every no. once in a while. It was just it was just a wacky thing. It was like being a record collector. I found I just I find stuff. I'm I'm at the small end of a funnel. I, I get lucky from time to time, and I managed to just happen to discover an hour's worth of live Hank Williams that nobody knew existed from 1950. Way cool. And got it into the hands of the right people and made the right deals. Got it released. And it did very, very well. It's called The Garden Spot. And it's it's brilliant because you're hearing Hank Williams recording a live series of little tiny live concerts, little 15-minute live shows in front oh, of an audience cool. of about a dozen people. So it's a really intimate little audience. And those were, that was, you know, I'm a huge Hank Williams fan. And to add an hour to his canon was just astounding to me and it came out and I thought that was the end of the story and then one of my friends calls me and says you know your album's nominated for a Grammy and I said oh you gotta be kidding me and then it won and it was like okay totally wacky thing to to do and it's in a box around here somewhere no I don't I didn't actually get the record company got the Grammy I got the little paper certificate oh gee that's nice now I could get an actual statue it would have the record company name on it understood yeah, because they put it out, but they wanted like eleven hundred dollars for the little statue, and it was like, no, I'm not. I, I'll just, I, because I've mocked the Grammy for decades, because <laughs> I think the Grammys are another largely useless uh, award, but the fact that now I have one troubles me greatly because <laughs> your image is, is destroyed. Well, I, I, or the conflict I, is huge. I still want to mock the Grammys because they are silly, but yeah, it was noteworthy that this album came out. I mean, okay. When I was working with Johnny, I'm name dropping here. Okay. When I was working with Johnny Rotten from the sex Pistols, yeah, absolutely. For five years, we used to mock the Grammys and we had a bit that we were talking about how the Grammys at their outset, in 1958, when the Grammys were put together, they had only one category 
that was for black people. Only one out of all the categories. There was only one. Nice. And it was for best R&B record. And that year, 1958, the Grammy and its voting membership awards the first Grammy ever for the best R&B record to the champs for tequila, a white group. Excuse me? Yeah, a white group. You know, da 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 Yeah, the tequila. Yeah, that wins Frick the Grammy for best R&B record. It's a white group. And it's like, oh, for crying out loud. They had, you had one category. Right, and, and you, you could do something right, at least halfway right. <laughs> and and, and there you, were a lot of great R&B instrumentals or R&B records. You could have given it, you could have just closed your eyes and picked anything absolutely. by Little Richard. Yes. And it would have been better than tequila. Well, last year, uh, our Walensky wrote up about this, and I went over and saw it before they totally destroyed it, was that hotel, that little hotel uh, north of downtown where the the blacks would have to stay when they came to town. They couldn't stay, you know, Ray Charles stayed mm-hmm. there. All these, you know, famous, famous artists stayed there. And so I went by, took some pictures, and got a tile off one of the war- walls. But, uh, you know, because, yeah, they weren't going to be let into any other hotel in town. But one one media award that I do think you're proud of is the one you got from Jacobs Media, right? Radio's <laughs> most innovative uh, award. Yeah, I, I kind of earned that one. I kind of earned damn that right because I did a I did a I have done things. I, I mean, although they'll probably never recognize the whole classic rock thing, or and the Edge. The Edge was really kind of an extension of the, uh, there was K Rocks, which existed out in L.A. Uh, which was an alternative station. I just turned it into a little more of a uh, commercial Dallas-centric playlist. But uh, if I'm going to say, pin it to any one thing, I'm going to say the whole notion of Radio SAS, uh, that that was award-worthy. Radio SAS, uh, which is an acronym for Short Attention Span System. Ah, very good. Good point. was something I dreamed up uh, in 2000. And it's it's an idea that is very timely, but apparently ahead of its time because uh, we haven't found anybody in 18 years um, who's brave enough to put it on the radio. And Radio SAS is basically um, making bringing Top 40 radio up to the speed of how Top 40 radio listeners listen to the radio. Top 40 radio listeners, for the most part, are an impatient short attention span a lot. Uh, if you'll watch the way they'll listen is they will uh, do one of two things. They'll either be like a little Coke monkey punching button to button to button to button, 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 button. They'll just go from station to station to station. Or if they're listening to something, they'll skip, they'll skip, they'll skip, they'll skip, they'll skip. And I noticed everybody was doing this at approximately the same point. They were doing it after the second verse or after the second chorus. And so they could tolerate about two, two and a half minutes worth of a song. And then they were bored and they wanted the next song. They wanted that next injection of, of good, good feeling because, Oh, here's something new. Ooh, here's something new. Well, adrenaline hit. Yeah. They kept, they kept wanting that next hit and that next hit and songs were getting uh, flabbier and flabbier. They were turning into three, four, five minute songs that honestly, a lot of them were 90 second ideas and they were stretched into five minute songs. So I devised this radio format where you would take every single song in the playlist, all 300 of them, and you would reduce them to their most memorable bits. If the intro was 36 bars, well, now it's 16 bars. If the, uh, if there were 
uh, five sing-along choruses at the end. Well, we're going to give you two and get rid of that third verse. Nobody remembers the third verse. Even at karaoke, uh, nobody is paying attention when you do the third <laughs> verse and you're having to read all the words off the screen of the song that you've loved for 30 years because you don't remember the third verse, even though you've chosen to sing it in public. So get rid of the third verse. Uh, I mean, art be damned. We're just going to take the songs and we're going to give people the pared down little fillet that they want. And when you do that, as I did back in 2000, uh, you create a radio station that instead of playing 12 songs an hour, plays closer to 20, 21 songs an hour. And we did focus groups with real live people, 40 of them, in a room listening to 40 minutes of this radio station. And what do you think? And the remarks were, the station's got an incredible velocity to it. Wow, I feel like I heard a lot of music. All these great comments, not a single respondent noticed that the songs were about half of their original length. Nobody noticed. Nobody. Nobody. Not a single respondent. Fascinating. And that was, that was the turning point. It was like, okay, I'm on to something here. Um, I, because of past experiences, I sought and received a, a pair of U.S. patents on this. Uh, breaking ground, I'm the first person to ever have a patent on a radio format. Very good. Um, I might still be the only person, but I, I'm certainly the first. And I keep trying with different partners to try to find somebody with the stones to actually put this on the air. People, radio broadcasters say, well, what will the record companies think? I said, well, the record companies will love you because you're playing twice as much of their stuff. Well, what will the artists think? And I said, well, the artists are going to get a lot more exposure because you're playing more of their stuff. Well, yeah, but they might not like us. You know, they're all scared of Sheryl Crow or whatever. (laughs) So I'm still waiting for somebody. And and I'm, I'm dealing with somebody right now who's putting something together and and it might end up happening hopefully this year, but it's been a very long, disappointing road. Meanwhile, it does get me a lot of meetings being the guy who created this because the concept is, is reasonably well known in radio circles. Now people have heard of it and, and nobody's tried to do it yet because they're a bunch of scared bunnies radio programmers out there that they're just they're frightened of anything new they don't want to lose their job i don't want to make a decision that's out of the norm right right so and they know that lawyers are sitting around the corner yeah well yeah whatever yeah well we're nearing the end here by the way george has been super nice no i haven't yes you have i mean you let me in i've been nice to muddy that's true you have i I haven't been petting you that's true I haven't uh, rubbed your belly. uh, That's true. And I I think we'll pass on that. George just moved to a new house only just a few days ago. We're looking out on the lake from from his vantage point up here in the studio, which is kick-ass to say the least. Thank you so much for letting me come into your, invade your home when you've got boxes absolutely everywhere. That's really nice. I, yeah, I feel like I'm, I've, I'm surrounded by so many boxes talking to you. I feel like Lee Harvey Oswald in the school book depository looking out my window. At, <laughs> what, can I, what can I hit from here? <laughs> okay. I went all dark and historic. Yes, I know. You did. We, we, we went very deep there. <laughs> um, oh, look, school books. That's right. That's right. Uh, my, my mother-in-law called it the school book suppository. Ah. It's always uh, a great memory. 
You just mentioned one project you're going on as we close out. Is there any other projects you want to talk about? Well, I'm always doing my my comedy thing. Hopefully, we're going to bring comedy to vocal sometime soon. I've been, for the last eight years, I've been running a, a network of all comedy, all stand-up comedy radio stations. Yeah, I want, um, next time we get together, I want yeah. to talk about that. That was and, on my list to get to. but And that's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and we just picked up some uh, new stations. We've getting we just got a new one in San Diego that went on the air. And Colorado Springs looks like it's not far behind. And... I've got a deal in the works now that might get us another 20 or 30, which would be great because don't we all need a laugh about now? Damn Uh, right. And it is, uh, it's, it's a great stress reliever laughter turn off talk radio, put on a different kind of talk radio and you'll be a happier person. Yes. Well, in fact, a couple weeks ago when you were nice enough to invite me over to check out some of your albums, which I walked away with, with 30 plus at a very nice economical price. (laughs) But two of them I walked away with, one was uh, Lenny Bruce, which I uh, I love. And then I also got one of Groucho Marx, which is so cool. Oh, yeah. Classic recording. Absolutely. Well, George, it's been a real treat. Thank you so much. And if it's okay with you, I want to get back together in a few months and expand our conversation into other areas. Yes, we can do it again. Yes, I would love to. All right. Adios, everybody. Have a great day. Bye. Before we turned on the mics for George's interview, he took Muddy and I on a musical journey around his house. A vinyl record room with multiple cabinets going to the ceiling, lined with records. A CD room, just the same. Other rooms with music collectibles on display and stacked all around. By the way, George has just moved into a new house, so his organizing, filing, and displaying responsibilities are huge. Then we sat down and he played master recordings that never hit the market. Glenn Campbell singing Sinatra-type songs in an Elvis style, one of Steve Miller's first recordings when a teenager in Plano. We listened to two bands from the 70s in the Oak Cliff area of Dallas, which is where Muddy and I live. The bands were the Penthouse Five and the Outlaws. It was great stuff. Well... George Gamark has a plethora of sweaters. Oops, I mean a plethora of music knowledge. Don't worry, we're going to check back with George from time to time because he's going to give us some fascinating updates. A quick reference to my summer read, 1966 by John Savage. Great read, and I used it in developing my intro to the show. You may want to check this book out yourself. A couple weeks ago, our Dogger and Muddy guest, Eric Nadell, mentioned Cafe Momentum. Well, every month through November of 2018, Cafe Momentum has an acoustic evening. The next one is this coming Sunday, June 17th. It includes a family-style feast and great music from a local artist. you got to go check it out. Hope to see you there. In Episode 8, Muddy and I interviewed Josh Fleming, the founder and leader of the Vandaliers, a rising star country punk band. If you haven't checked them out, I bet you're going to soon. They just got picked up by Bloodshot Records. This record company handles the old 97s and several other top acts. I predict that the sales on their next record will be excellent. A big Texas congratulations to the Vandalier family. Just a thought, but you may want to drift back and listen to our interview with Josh in episode 8. Hey, I mean hey, when you listen to a Dogger and Muddy show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Bye campers. Amy, can you take our listeners home? For ongoing updates, follow Dogger and Muddy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Till next time, adios. I cannot feel speak. 
Dances underwater Drifting in the open sea Or is this a dream? Cannot see 